88.3 Life FM. It's Aaron Schust from a CD, Anything Worth Saying. The song is called My Savior, My God. It's eight minutes into the hour, four o'clock. Matt Pelashek hanging out with you this afternoon, and uh, it's my privilege to have with us this afternoon author Frank Viola, author of P- Pagan Christianity. Thanks so much for joining us, Frank. Oh, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Well, we're glad to have you on the show. Now, I've, I've been talking about this this afternoon. I, I do want to throw this out there, that, and, and you were just talking with me just a moment ago about this, but there is a lot of controversy about the book that we're going to discuss here. And so, well, well, the views of the author don't necessarily represent those of KAXL. I, I do want to encourage our listeners to listen with an open heart and an open mind, whether you agree or disagree, uh, just to lend him your ear and hear what he has to say. Uh, Frank Viola is a nationally recognized expert on new trends for the church. He's written eight books, including this one, Pagan Christianity, along with co-author George Barna. And one of the first things that I wanted to mention, uh, Frank, is right in the title, I think that might throw (laughs) some people as soon as they see pagan and Christianity together. Uh, That's probably going to freak people out a little bit. And I was just checking out your website, and you're defining pagan not necessarily as evil or or anything like that. Uh, How how do you explain uh, pagan uh, in the title, pagan Christianity? Well, that's a great question, uh, and I will tell your listeners that the original title of this book was From the Cross to the Cathedral, and uh, everybody who looked at that title said, nobody wants to read a book with that on it, <laughs> so why don't you call it something that will stir interest, and uh, we came up with pagan Christianity, and as you said, we are not calling any Christian pagan, and we're not using the word to mean evil or sinful or even wrong or bad. We are referring to those things, whether they're practices or mindsets that are non-Christian. And one of the things the book does is it traces the origins of virtually everything we do for church, everything we do today for modern church, and it shows that much of it did not come from the New Testament, it didn't come from Jesus Christ, it didn't come from the Apostles, it didn't come from any New Testament author. In fact, much of it came from and was adopted from the Church's surrounding culture, most of which was Greco-Roman paganism, meaning non-Christians. And so we trace this in the book, and we document all of our findings, and it is a fascinating historical study, one of which uh, most Christians have found to be very, very helpful. Uh, Some uh, have not found it to be exciting at all. (laughs) They're upset by it because it challenges many cherished traditions. Well, I think that's one of the things that stuck out to me as I've been reading through this book, is it presents a lot of ideas that we're not used to, a lot of things that I've never heard before, a lot of things I've never even considered before. But I thought one of the principles or goals of the book, and you can tell me if if this sounds right, uh, in the beginning of your book, you said it this way, and I thought maybe this was sort of a summary of the purpose of the book. You talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it says, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees both teach us this often ignored lesson. It is harmful to dilute the authority of God's word either by addition or by subtraction. I think most people would agree with that. And you go on to say, we break the scripture just as much by burying it under a mountain of human traditions as by ignoring its principles. And uh, I thought that was interesting. It's a way I'd never really heard of it before. Would you say that kind of summarizes the book, sort of the goal uh, that you have with the book? 
Absolutely, absolutely. The fact of the matter is, most professing Christians do not realize that the central concepts and practices associated with what we call church are not rooted in the New Testament, but in patterns established in the post-apostolic age. Mm -hmm. And one of our main goals, and we say this in the beginning of the book, and we say it at the end, is that we are trying to clear away the debris, the clutter, that actually uh, hinders, we believe, the body of Jesus Christ from functioning the way she ought to function, and we're trying to make room for the absolute centrality, supremacy, and headship of Jesus Christ in his church. One of the burdens, one of the pulse beats of, of George Barna and I is to see the church handed back to the headship of Jesus Christ. And when you study the history of where our traditions came from, you begin to see that the church as we know it today has really reverted into a business organization, especially here in the West and in America. And Jesus Christ is not the functioning head of the church in so many cases. A human being is. And we're challenging that, just like Martin Luther challenged the Catholic uh, church system with his 95 thesis. Mm -hmm. uh, we are in the midst, we believe, in the midst of a second reformation, and so we are raising questions. We are challenging on the basis of New Testament teaching and church history. Uh, your, reader, or your listeners ought to know that there's over a thousand footnotes in this book. We are not blowing bubbles. We're not creating air castles uh, out yeah. of thin air. We are actually documenting where our church practices came from. And it's a, it's a sober thing uh, for many people, and and the reaction is, is quite interesting. Nobody stands in the middle. Uh, either people love it or they hate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, just like you said, um, you know, this isn't uh, Frank isn't necessarily just you know some guy that wants to throw out all tradition, you know, anarchist hippie guy or anything like that. Right. Um, like you said, it is just packed with research, and I've been reading through this myself. Some of these pages, almost a third of the page is nothing but footnotes from uh, from other books, from historical documents and things like that. How much how much time did it take? I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine all the all this stuff. There's got to be hundreds, thousands, you said, of references and footnotes in this book. You know, how long did it take you to do all that, and were you surprised when you're going into it with what you found? Well, I tell you what, it first of all, it was the most fascinating, exhilarating, incredible, amazing study I've ever done in my life. I mean, I, I, there were times where I just about fell out of my chair when I found out where certain things we do came from, especially when we've been passing them off as being biblical. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I was in the institutional church for 13 years in many different denominations, from Baptist to Pentecostal to CMA, and on and on. And I was told by all the leadership virtually this, everything we do is rooted in the Word of God. We do everything by the Word of God. Everything is scriptural, etc., etc. And uh, when I began to do this study, uh, Matt, I found out that that was not true in so many cases. But to be honest with you, somebody asked me that recently, how long did it take? And I, my answer to them was this, I have no real memory of writing this book. Uh, I think I've repressed it all. Uh, it was rather difficult because there was approximately 300 books that passed through my hands because documenting and footnoting is one of the most rigorous things a, an author can do. But I will come right around and say that George Barna was an incredible help. I mean, mm -hmm. that man is probably one of the best researchers in the country. Yeah. He is the most quoted Christian leader in our generation, and he added so much 
to it, it made it just a stronger work. But I think all in all, it took me about four years to write. Okay. And uh, I, I'm very glad it's done because it's, it's really, really serving many Christians, at least from my mail. If my mail is correct, and I'm not counting the hate mail I get yeah. uh, from those who don't like it. A little joke there, folks. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm getting lots of mail that's saying by Christians, thank God you've written this book. Thank you so much because you have put into words what I have felt about church for many, many years, and I feel set free for the first time. Yeah. Wow. And so that's encouraging. Yeah. Well, you know, um, one of the things uh, I, I think that maybe people can relate to is or agree with, at least, whether or not people agree with all the things that you're talking about in the book, even though they're well-researched, is the idea that um, a lot of things... We tend to, especially as we get older, I think, once we have our routines, once we have our traditions, the things that we know, the things that we do, we don't want the boat to rock. You know, I, I think yes. a lot of people would agree that uh, whatever the case may be, whatever it is that, we, you know, the topic may be, it's uncomfortable. And so uh, <laughs> to begin with, yeah, true or not, uh, it's something that not everybody just don't really like to hear, I guess. Well, that's true, especially if someone's invested in the institutional church structure, mm -hmm. and especially if they're invested in the clergy system. The fact of the matter is, one of the things we challenge is the entire clergy-laity divide, mm -hmm. and we challenge it on scriptural grounds, and we also challenge it on the basis of church history. And here's something that Upton Sinclair said. He said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Hmm. And so consequently, the more a person is invested in institutional Christianity as it is, um, the more they tend not to be open to any challenges uh, on the traditions that they hold dear. One of the best scholars that I deem very highly is John Stott, and uh, one of the things he said was, the essence of being a radical is being willing to subject one's inherited traditions and conventions to biblical scrutiny. A lot of our personal security is found in our convictions. We develop a personal stance and find our security in it, and then when anybody disagrees, we feel threatened. To me, this goes back to something Jesus Christ himself said. He told the religious leaders of his day, very simply, you nullify the Word of God by your tradition. And so consequently, those of us who believe the Bible to be God's Word have a responsibility to judge everything. No matter how long we've held them to be cherished traditions, we have a responsibility to judge them by the Word of God, and that's what we're trying to do in the book. Yeah, I think I really like, I appreciate the approach that you take, because again, uh, I think as as we, some of us maybe flip into a defensive mode upon hearing the title, about hearing the premise of the book, um, but the way you approach it is not, you know, you're not picking everything up and just shoving it in our face. Um, you're going about it just like that. You're looking at Scripture. What does the Bible say? You're looking at history and all these things, and uh, so it's a very well-balanced approach, like I said, not just... Uh, thrown out because you want to or because you know you're trying to stick it to the man or anything like that um well i wanted to we kind of skimmed over the top a little bit of some of the things that the book addresses because there's a whole lot of things from the traditions in the church everything from the church building to most of the things within a church building to the way the church functions i wondered if we could just give a brief example so people kind of get a taste of it one of my favorites that you talked about that i've read so far had to do with the pew um maybe you could just <laughs> briefly explain uh the Pew, what it is, uh, a little bit about the origins and uh, how that affects us as Christians and how, why it matters. 
Well, you know, a lot of this goes back to the architecture of the church buildings, and when pews were put in, they essentially followed the, the typical architecture of the church building, and the origins of that are just amazing. And we don't have time to go into the origins of the church building, but if you notice, there is an elevated platform. That's where the clergy sits and stands and ministers from. And then everything else is uh, lower, and that's where the pews sit. And the pew essentially, and we make this point in the book, essentially conditions God's people to be passive spectators. And if you ask the average Christian what is church, in their minds, church is a once a week or twice a week meeting where they come together, enter into a building, sit down in a pew, and watch a performance led by the clergy and the music team or the choir or the worship leader. And most of the time during that two hour or however long it is service, that religious service, God's people are sitting as pillars of salt on the pew watching, spectating, muted and passive. And this is what churches to most Christians. And we challenge this on biblical grounds, we challenge it on historical grounds. And we show where it came from, where that whole concept came from. And we also show what the New Testament teaches church really is. And it's something very, very different. Uh, if I can use an illustration, and I think this really summarizes the book. Okay. There was a little girl named Sally, and she's about 12 years old. And every Easter Sunday, she watched her mother prepare Easter dinner. And so she watched her mother go into the refrigerator, take out a ham, put it on a cutting board, and interestingly enough, Sally's mother would cut one end off of the ham, and then she would cut the other end off of the ham. And one day, as Sally watched this, she asked her mother, Mommy, why do you cut the ends of the ham off? And Sally's mother looked up into the air, quizzical. There was a pause. She looked at Sally and says, I have no idea. This is how my mother always did it. Let's give her a call and ask her. So they picked up the phone, and uh, Sally's mother called her mother. And she said, Mom, why is it that we cut the ends of the ham off? Sally just asked me that question, and I have no earthly idea. I've just seen you do it every time we had Easter dinner. And there was a pause at the end of the phone. And the mother responded and said, you know what? I have no idea. That's how my mother did it. <laughs> so uh, Sally's mother said to Sally, let's call Grandma. Let's call your, your great-grandmother, uh, my mother's mother, and ask her why she did it. So they called great-grandma and asked the same question. And then the great-grandmother, Sally's great-grandmother, laughed at the end of the line and said, Oh, that's easy. I cut the ends of the ham off because in those days our oven wasn't large enough to fit the ham. <laughs> and I have just described modern-day Christianity. Many of us dress up for church. We go into a building. We're handed a bulletin. Uh, doesn't matter what denomination you're part of, you're going to follow basically the same order of worship. And we have an entire chapter on where the order of worship came from. Yeah. You sit in a pew. You sing some songs. There's some announcements. There's the offertory, maybe special singing. Then is the sermon, the high point of the meeting, the very point at which the meeting is judged by the sermon. Most of us, how is church today? Well, the pastor spoke on so-and-so, and we judge yeah. the entire meeting on the sermon. We stare at the back of someone 
someone's head during that time. Uh, if we're uh, wearing a necktie, it might be cutting oxygen off our brain. And uh, we never ask why we do most of what we do. We walk out of the building, we go on to live our individual Christian lives, never questioning why we've done any of it. Mm-hmm. And one of the explosive arguments of the book is that none of this comes from the New Testament. Yeah. It, none of it comes from Jesus or the apostles. And then we raise this question, is it possible that what we have picked up through tradition is actually hindering the Church of Jesus Christ from being what God designed her to be. Mm-hmm. And that's where we leave the reader, right there. Okay. Well, and that's kind of what I wanted to ask. You know, some people may be listening or maybe they're checking out the book and reading through it and saying, you know, we address things like the pew or uh, the pulpit and, and some of what may seem like little things within the church. And, and you may you know hear the excuse of, does it really matter? I mean, does it really matter where the preacher is and where we sit and sit, things like that? And um, you said uh, that even uh, some of these things, as we, we think it's practical, that it's all a case of being practicality. But uh, in the book, you said something to the effect of these reasons, they collapse when you put them under careful scrutiny. I wonder if you could explain that just a little. After every chapter, after we trace the origin of the church building and the weekly sermon, and uh, after we trace the modern pastor office, we believe there were pastors in the New Testament, but we make the argument that what the pastoral office is today is very, very different from what it was in the first century. We trace the clergy laity division. We trace the Lord's Supper being taken with a little wafer and a little shot glass of uh, grape juice. Uh, baptism being something that's usually postponed until later in life. And we trace all of these things, and then we raise this question after each chapter. Is this a hindrance to what Jesus Christ had envisioned for the church in the very beginning, what the apostles taught, or is it a help? And we come out saying that many of them, not all of them, but many of them actually hinder the church from being what she was called to be. In effect, we paint a picture of the church right out of the New Testament that the church of Jesus Christ is not a building, it's not a denomination, it's not a service, it is a living breathing, organic, biological organism. It is a community of people that share divine life together, God's life, and live by that life together, and everyone is participating. Everyone is making decisions together. Everyone is sharing. Everyone is ministering in the meetings. There are different gifts, yes, but there is no clergy or laity division. And uh, this is something that's very clear in the New Testament, yet as the years roll by, a lots of pagan concepts and Greco-Roman traditions seeped into the church, and today what we have on the earth is a very, very lucrative business, where the pastor is the CEO. We are spending over $230 billion in real estate. Uh, that's how much the institutional church owns in real estate. Wow. And we are basically have turned the Church of Jesus Christ into General Motors. It's a business, it's a spectator sport, and for most Christians, uh, a large number of Christians, they are dying on the vine. And this is why one million adult Christians in America leave the institutional church every single year. And so we are trying to answer the question, why is that? Could it not be? Because we have traded the traditions of men for the Word of God when it comes to the church. Wow. If you're just tuning in right now, author Frank Viola is with us on the phone. He's the author of Pagan Christianity. And uh, as we, you kind of just touched on this, Frank, um, 
but as we're as you're talking in the book about all these different things, that, how it's been institutionalized, like you said, it's almost like General Motors, a big business running. Uh, maybe you could summarize how, because uh, you talk about the first century church. How should a church look today when when we have the idea of church? We are all a community, um, you know, as believers. We're not tr- uh, the book saying we're not limited to a building or a certain time, but church as a breathing, living organism. Right. Um, how would you, you know, because we talk about the first century church meeting in the church. Uh, how, how would that be different than the, the church meetings that we have, your typical church meeting? Before I answer that, let me just preface by saying this, that you have to be careful when you look at the first century church to distinguish between what's cultural mm-hmm. and what transcends culture. Uh, what's part of the principles, the enduring principles of the church. For example, uh, we're not suggesting we go back to wearing togas and sandals and, you know, uh, speaking Greek and uh, not using electricity and so forth. I might uh, still prefer that over wearing a tie. And what's that? I, may, I might even prefer a toga over wearing a tie, however. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Um, but we are saying that there are enduring principles that are native to the expression of the church, no matter what culture she finds herself in. One of the things that Paul says is that the church is the body of Jesus Christ. And just like my physical body has a form, it has an expression that comes out of life, that comes out of its DNA, so too the church of Jesus Christ has a DNA. It is an organic thing, and the Scripture is very clear that it's an organism and not an institution. Consequently, one of the things you'll find about the church, and this is true across the board, whatever culture or time it's in, it will express itself as a community. That means that the people are in one another's lives. They take care of one another, not just on Sunday morning, not just on Wednesday night. It's not a once a week, twice a week show that you go see. It is a true community. It's a face-to-face community. And so that's one element of the church that many Christians do not know. And we all have a, a longing deep within our hearts for community. Uh, every Christian that's in, that's in touch with their spiritual instincts wants fellowship with other believers. That's not just shaking the hand of your friend in church on Sunday morning. That's a shared life together where you take care of one another. Another thing is every member functioning meetings. Throughout the New Testament, you will find again and again that when the church gathers together, there's only one head, one person in control of the meetings, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a true church meeting, everyone is functioning, everyone is participating, everyone is sharing according to their gifts. Uh, I have been in many, many organic church meetings like this, and there's nothing like it on the face of the earth. You walk into this meeting, typically they're in living rooms. Everyone is facing one another in a circle or a square. It's not pews looking at one person. And everyone is sharing out of their experience of this living Christ that lives in us. And the result is everyone is edified. You can read this in Hebrews chapter 10. You can read it in 1 Corinthians 14. And so that's another element. And these are things that have been lost to us. We have traded all of that into, as I said before, making the church, turning it into a business, creating a CEO type, which is the pastor, and turning it into largely a spectator sport. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
We challenge all this on historical and biblical grounds. Now, we'll tell you this, too, and your listeners may be interested. We have a sequel coming out after Pagan Christianity. It is the sequel, and it paints the picture of what you have asked about. What does a New Testament-styled organic church really look like in detail? Mm -hmm. Probably around 300 pages. It comes out in August. It's called Reimagining Church. And those two books, Pagan Christianity and Reimagining Church, go together hand-in-hand. One is the deconstructive book, which uh, exposes the traditions that we have in the church. That's pagan Christianity. And then the other one, Reimagining Church, builds up what should stand in its place according to the New Testament. Well, hey, Frank, I know we're running a little bit long. I just have a, a couple of questions to wrap things up here. And one yes, of them, as, as you just finished describing a little bit of the organic church and meeting together, everybody involved, uh, one thing that comes to my mind immediately is uh, like a Bible study or a small group, you know, that a church will host. Uh, many churches I know do this. Uh, I'm a part of a, yes. a of a Bible study. Would What would you say to that as um, there is still a weekly church service, but there's also this outside source that seems to function more like that, where everybody is involved um, um, in some cases, I've been a part of Bible studies where there isn't necessarily a leader. It's just centered on prayer and discussion. Um, right. W- what's your feeling on that as a, almost a supplement or a, a part of the church experience, including the weekly Sunday service? Right. That's an excellent question. Uh, many churches today have small groups during the week. Here, here's the problem that I see. First of all, having a small group is actually better in many ways than just trading in the concept of a church being once a week sitting in a pew listening to a sermon going home. So it's definitely an improvement. The problem is typically those small groups, and I say typically because if yours is the exception, then boy, it is the exception. But typically that small group is really another program added on to the institutional church structure. It is not viewed as the church itself. It is viewed as another subset or supplement or optional program. Uh, Secondly, typically, those small groups will have someone there operating as a leader. They will either control and give the agenda for what goes on and in the order in which it goes on, or they will will facilitate what happens. And so those meetings really are not meetings that are under the absolute direct headship of Jesus Christ. There is still a human being functioning as the leader, the human being that everyone is looking to. And uh, that's a mighty big difference. Uh, I have been in many, many small group meetings, and typically there's an agenda ahead of time. God's people will have some freedom to share, but there's always some kind of order that's implemented. And typically, and oftentimes, really, a lot of these small groups, <laughs> what they do is they get together, have some prayer, have some singing, and then, which is usually led by someone, uh, the singing especially, and then someone will uh, go into a discussion on the pastor's last sermon. This is very, very common. Uh, so what we're talking about when we say the organic church, we're talking about the whole thing. And we're talking about something that's totally under the headship of Christ. There is no one person or persons directing everything that goes on. Uh, everyone operates according to their gifts. And Jesus Christ is truly the head, not just in rhetoric, mm-hmm. but in reality. So that would be some yeah. of the major differences. Okay. 
You know, I could. I think I could just spend the rest of the afternoon talking to you about this stuff. Of course, uh, one thing can always bring up another question. You have all these things that we could discuss. But, of course, we have limited time. And, of course, that's why you have a book. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, well, just in, just in closing, uh, I imagine, as we, we've said kind of throughout and as we started off the interview, a lot of these ideas brand new to a lot of our listeners and, uh, as we said, maybe very uncomfortable with them. Is there anything that you'd want to say to those folks out there that are maybe uh, maybe it's just feels a little unsettling that, to, uh, to them to hear all of this. Well, I think uh, two things. One is our motivation for writing this book, you'll find it in the opening pages, and you'll find it at the very end. It is simply this. We are trying to make more room for the centrality, the supremacy, and the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if something within your heart says yes, that's what I'm interested in, then you will definitely want to read this book. The second thing is, as Bible-believing Christians, as evangelical Christians, we have to understand that the Word of God and not human traditions should be our guide for determining individual Christian life and our church practices. And so consequently, we ought not to be afraid to look at our practices in light of the Scripture. And if we're afraid of that, if we're somehow threatened by that, then I would suggest that something's wrong. Maybe, just maybe, we are enshrining tradition over the living, breathing Word of God. Because if not, we ought to have no fear at all to take any suggestion, any challenge, and scrutinize it under Scripture. So that's what I would say to your listeners. I would also say this. We have a website called paganchristianity.org. I'll say it again, paganchristianity.org, and that has much uh, in the way of free bonus chapters, question answers to the book, uh, interviews with George Barna and myself. It, it has a host of resources that people can download and read for free. It also has the book at deep, deep discounts if they want to buy it and read it themselves. And so I would direct people to that as well. It will help them understand more about what we've written about. All right. Well, we're just touching the very smallest tip of the iceberg when it comes to this whole thing. The book is called Pagan Christianity. Once again, author Frank Viola joining us. Thanks so much for being with us, Frank. It's, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and uh, very fascinating stuff. Well, thank you for having me. It's quite an honor. I appreciate it. All right. And again, if anybody out there wants some more information, uh, go check out the book. You can find it at local bookstores. You can look online, paganchristianity.org.